Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I guess uh, a lot of folks are traveling because it is a kind of a three-day weekend. First thing this morning, Brother Dave has brought me a prayer request. He has a friend named Ellen who has a 40-year-old daughter named Amanda who has overdosed on drugs and is in a coma. And there's a lot of other problems in that family. And Brother Dave has asked us as a church this morning to pray for that lady, for her daughter, and that family. So would you agree with me this week that you'll you'll say some prayers for her and we'll pray right now before we get started this morning. Our precious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning because you are the source of infinite grace and mercy. And what seems to be impossible situations are no problem for you. Our small minds can't comprehend how you can do the miraculous things you do. But Lord, we trust you this morning with Ellen, with her daughter Amanda. And we just pray for grace and mercy. And that your Holy Spirit would be in this situation and in this family. We don't know the answers, Lord, but you do. You love these people just as much as you love each one of us. Enough to send your son as a sacrifice for their sins that they might enjoy relationship with you. And so, Father, this morning, we just lift them up to you. For this is all the power we have, Father, is to come into your presence and ask that you touch these that are hurting, these that are wounded, these that are trodden down. And we just pray, Father, today that your mercy would prevail, that you would bring glory out of this terrible situation, that you would bring praise to your name, and that we would stand back and say how awesome is our God. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, at Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and I have started the book of Galatians and gone through the first chapter the last time I spoke. And today we're going to re-look at about 10 verses and maybe take a sidebar from Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, Then what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade man or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. Now just to review, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Galatia because there were these Jewish legalists called Judaizers that had infiltrated the church. And these Jews were teaching That faith in Christ alone was not enough to make you uh, right with God or give you a right relationship with God. And according to their teaching, you needed to have strict adherence to the Mosaic law. And you also needed to be circumcised and to keep all the customs and the rituals and the ceremonies and all these things. And in Paul's day, the Old Testament was not written down as we have it today in our Bible, but it was passed along orally. And this oral version of the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament was called the Halakha. And as you might imagine, 
It was filled with the influence of the orator. I'm sure each time one of these orators repeated what he knew about the law in the Old Testament, that he kind of added his own little twist to it. We kind of tend to do that as humans, don't we? Well, this oral version of Halakha became so complex and burdensome that even the most astute rabbinical scholars could not master it by interpretation or by conduct. Now, Paul expresses his astonishment here and his anger in response to this teaching and begins to establish his defense by establishing, number one, that he is an apostle, and number two, the gospel he preaches was not taught to him by man or the other apostles. Now, it's interesting that Paul stood up because there's so many things in our world today that our pastors are afraid to stand up. There are things going on in the last two years in our country that they're afraid to talk about. There are Christians today being persecuted for their faith, and there are Christians today being canceled for their faith. I'm thankful that Paul was such a man of God that he didn't care about the consequences. He was sold out to Jesus, and he was willing to speak against this. Or, or our faith could have been destroyed by what these men were doing. Christianity could have gone away and just been a, a, a minute uh, faction or sect of Judaism. But Paul had courage. And Paul established that he was an apostle. Number one, he talks later on in this chapter about how he was called of God and he was not taught by man. But, you know, we today kind of think of Christianity as, well, if we educate the people, we can educate them into a relationship with Christ. But Paul's relationship with Christ resulted as direct revelation on the Damascus Road. He was knocked off his ride into the ground and struck blind, and he heard a voice from heaven. And I fear today that we have turned Christianity into a mental ascent to some facts or doctrine that we have. Remember before I said in my study of Thessalonians that authentic Christianity consists of three elements. A personal relationship with God, sound doctrine, and a changed life. Well, Paul's personal relationship with Christ began on the Damascus Road. He had previously persecuted the church. He had had Christians put in prison, beaten, jailed, maybe even killed. And he turned around when he met the living Christ. Paul's doctrine was flawless because he didn't get it from a man. He wasn't taught it. He received it directly from, from God. And the third element we talked about was a changed life. And Paul's life definitely changed. He exhibited a, a miraculous change from the one who persecuted to church, the church to being the chief apostle of the church. The Judaizers' objections to Paul's gospel were twofold. Number one, they said, we know the law of Moses is holy and was given by God, and your gospel seems to do away with it. And number two, without these rules and regulations that we've been living by, uh, all these laws to kind of sort of hold people accountable, accountable, they will live very sinful lives or licentious lives. Now, Paul later on in the book of Galatians, rebuts both of these and explains that Christianity is not a cancellation of the law. Jesus himself said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And Paul teaches later on, and we will get into that, and as we continue to study this book, we'll discuss that and examine Paul's rebuttal of these objections. But G Paul points out that this gospel of Christ, this good news that you are saved by grace through faith, it is the act of God plus nothing that you or I can do. 
that it is the fulfillment of the law. And he goes through the Old Testament and shows how all of these blocks fall in place. The second uh, thing that the Judaizers said was a flaw was that the gospel of faith alone will cause people to just say, well, if I can just be saved by faith and what God has done, then I can go out and do whatever I want to do and just once in a while ask God to forgive me and live a very licentious life and sinful life. And that actually is evidence that they really don't have a saving faith, that they really aren't saved. Because saving faith will produce fruit. And so Paul will, Paul will go into a defense of that, and we'll save that for later. But the reason uh, Paul was so exercised about these perverting the gospel, how he said they should be cursed, was because of the eternal consequences. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ to the glory of God alone, plus nothing we can add. This message is revolutionary, and unlike every other religion, every other religion is about what you can do to earn favor with a deity. Christianity is about what God has done for us to reinstate our broken relationship with him. Martin Luther, from back in the 1500s, who started the Reformation, was a priest who was so enamored with the idea that he could earn his way to heaven that he fasted, he prayed, he read his Bible, he confessed. He wore his confessor father out, uh, Father Confessor Von Stupitz, so much that the father was so worn out, he kept trying to convince Luther that there was more to a relationship with God than him trying to climb up the ladder of, or the Tower of Babel on his own through works and his own deeds. But Luther would not relent. He continued to pray and to fast and, and to do penance. He, was, he pushed himself till he was just skin and bones on the verge of almost dying when he discovered Galatians and Romans and this, this gospel of grace. Luther was so obsessed with these things, he pushed himself almost to death. And Luther thought that, that if he just, just prayed enough or if he just confessed enough or if he just fasted enough or had, did penance enough, uh, he could become blameless. But his efforts did not produce the results he desired. And at that time in his life, he discovered the truth of grace here in the book of Galatians and Romans. He nearly burst with joy at discovering the simple truth that our efforts, or what we call works, do not save us. But God, it is God who saves us by his sacrificial death on the cross. All we need to do to be justified is believe in him and what he did. Romans 1.17 says... For therein is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by works of the law, for by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, man has a terrible tendency to take a truth and become so excited about it, so enamored with it, so reverence it that he can turn it into an idol. And this is kind of what Luther did. When he was translating the Bible into the German language, he wanted to leave out the book of James. James. 
he said that epistle is just a thorn in my flesh uh I've discovered this good thing. I'm saved by grace. I'm going to go with that. And I don't want to hear this thing James is talking about over here. The brother of Jesus wrote this little book. You might be familiar with it. And we'll look at that in just a second. But Luther uh, later came around to see that there has to be a balance between our faith and works. And he did translate it into German, by the way. So, uh, but since that time... Uh, there's been a kind of a drifting. You know, it's kind of like we're driving down the road and we kind of maybe aren't paying enough attention and we all of a sudden realize we're drifting toward the ditch over here and we make a correction in the wheel and all of a sudden we end up in the ditch on the other side of the road. And that's kind of the way it was with this thing about faith. Luther kind of did that and it, it grew worse through time and all the way down through 1930s when Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was dealing with the Nazis and, and, and wrote a rebuttal to the same thing. Um, some have turned what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called, turned to what he called cheap grace. How else can we account for the current state of affairs in our country? We have, as the church, has let the left remove prayer and the Ten Commandments from public life. We've allowed the murder of 63 million babies. And now the brainwashing of our children into gay, lesbian, transgender lifestyles, effectively destroying the biblical view of marriage and the family, which is the basis of civilization. We in the American church have cheapened the ideas of belief and real faith. James, in his epistle, speaks to all of us who think there need be no connection between what we say we believe and how we live. We have reduced Belief to mere intellectual assent. I have a little survey here. I love surveys. I always give you surveys, don't I? A recent study conducted February 20, uh, 2021 by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that most Christians, adults, 69% are self-identified Christians. 69% of America is self-identified Christians. While they hold to the basic tenets of faith, it's also worth noting that these self-identified Christians hold to some beliefs that contradict the Bible, such as believing that people are basically good. What does the Bible say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous. No, not one. But they, 72%, 72% that believe that there is no absolute truth who is the absolute truth? It's, it's, it's a person, not a fact. He is the living God. He is truth. He is truth. And there is there's 52% believe that there's no absolute truth. I, I had that wrong. But 72%, excuse me, I got that back. 72% believe that there's no absolute truth. Additionally, 58% of self-identified Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is not real. A real, he's not a real living being. 64% say that all faiths are of equal value. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If a man tries to enter any other way, he's a thief and a robber. These are startling statistics. 
say that all faiths have equal value. And 57% believe in karma. The don'ts, now the don'ts are those people that don't know if there's a God, don't care if there's a God, and, and uh, have no desire to find out. The don'ts have also grown significantly from 12% of our population in 2011 to 34% in 2021. That's a big jump. Significantly, 43% of millennials are considered don'ts in Barna's research group, meaning they don't believe in God or know if God exists or even cares. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Well, James had some things to say about this faith that we're talking about this morning. In James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, men, that a man, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. James 1.22 said, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James knew it was easy enough to hear something, and just kind of nod our head or our assent. But if we do not act on what we have heard, we're deceiving ourselves. There is more to believing than mere intellectual assent. James is speaking sarcastically and mockingly here when he says, You say you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The message here is that God expects more of us than simply saying we believe. What we do matter, do matters because our actions illustrate what we actually believe. Erwin Lutcher this week in his podcast asked, does your daily schedule show that you have faith? What do you do every day testifies what you really believe? So if we do not have good works, we obviously do not have the faith we claim. God knows precisely what we believe by the way we live our lives. He's not fooled. He sees our hearts. And he sees our actions. I'm reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As I told you earlier. The, Lutheran, the German Lutheran pastor. And Bonhoeffer was one of the pastors. That spoke out against the Nazis. We wonder today. How, how the church. Could have been so silent. 
through the atrocities of the Nazis. All the horrific events that happened, the torture of Jews, the, the maiming of children, the, the, the imprisonment of the Poles and the gypsies and, and horrific things that happened. And, and there was a vibrant German church, the Lutheran church, the church of Martin Luther of the Reformation was there. And we wonder, we wonder at, at that church, how could they allow all that horrific, all those horrific things to happen and remain silent. And I suppose that we think we would have done things differently. But are we not today doing the same things? Jews aren't being tortured and killed, but 63 million voiceless babies have been put to death. Millions of Poles and gypsies aren't being imprisoned. They're beaten. But our children are being brainwashed away from biblical lifestyles, faith in God, and a biblical worldview. There were 18,000 pastors in Germany during the rise of the power of the Nazis. Bonhoeffer tried to organize them into a group called the Confessing Church and to resist these atrocities and, and speak out and say, hey, these Jews, what you're doing is wrong to the Jewish people because they're the children of God. But only 3,000 joined him out of the 18,000. On the other end of the scale, there were 3,000 pastors that thought everything the Nazis were doing was fine, and they were in lockstep with the Nazis. But in the middle, there were 12,000 pastors, 12,000 pastors, who said, well, we don't want to get involved. That's political. That's a hot-button issue. We just want to preach the gospel. We just want to stay in our church and study the word and preach the gospel. And today we have the benefit of knowing the outcome of that, don't we? 12, 13 million lives lost in World War II. They said they didn't want to get involved. We just want to preach the gospel. We don't want to touch hot button issues. How did that turn out? Like today, maybe they were motivated by fear. We don't speak for fear today because we're afraid we'll be canceled. They'll kick us off of Facebook or Twitter or whatever, YouTube. We're afraid of being called a racist or homophobic or a Christian nationalist or a domestic terrorist. But when we refuse to speak, we make it harder for others to step up. The more we're silent... Uh, Sandy Rios in the morning I listened to on AFR. One of the things that, that always amazes me, she says, we're not called to be nice. We're called to be faithful to our God. We're called to speak the truth in love. We're called to stand for what's right and what God has told us is right. Some may say, I don't speak for fear that I might offend someone and they'd never return to church. <laughs> you ever heard that? Well, I don't want to deal with I. I don't want to say that homosexuality is a sin because I might cause them to go away and never come back. You think Jesus had that fear when he stood before the Pharisees and he said, you're of your father the devil and you speak lies because he's the father of it. That's pretty harsh. You think he worried about their eternal souls and them not coming back? You see, it's all in God's hands. It's not in our hands. We're called to be faithful to the truth. What about when he called the Pharisees tombs of dead men's bones? And the disciples said, Jesus, did, don't you realize you kind of offended them? 
You think he lost sleep over that? This was God incarnate himself. Standing for the truth because he was the truth. So I think sometimes we let ourselves be defeated before we get started because of these fears. We need to stand in the truth. Jesus called these Pharisees snakes and tombs of dead men's bones. So if God incarnate spoke like that, I think maybe his disciples and his followers should leave it in his hands. Remember when I taught Thessalonians about the great deception coming before the rapture and the Antichrist? If we are not seeing it today, I don't know what we're seeing. I'll read the verses to you. In verse 8 it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What is the lie? What is the lie he's talking about? Could it be that what we're seeing today, good is evil, evil is bad. You religious people, you Christians, don't put your religion on my body if I want to abort my baby. Don't tell me that homosexuality is wrong. Don't tell me that marriage is only between a man and a woman. We're seeing lots of deception. We've been deceived the last two years about a lot of things. We're in a chaotic world today. We're closer to nuclear war than we've ever been in our lifetime since 1962. Even the president said that this week. There's great deception going on. We've been told we must wear masks that now scientists tell us are ineffective. We've been told we must take shots that don't prevent or stop the spread of COVID. We've had our churches shut down and silenced. By these medical experts who've made millions of dollars. Look at Fauci's income. We're forcing our good, honest military people out of the military because they refuse to take the shot. We've got doctors telling us continue to take boosters when they're telling us, when the real scientists are telling us they're only 5% effective and they can't tell us what the side effects might be. We have some doctors who are speaking up and saying, that there have been 100,000 deaths, not from COVID, but from the vaccine. These facts are being kept from us. We're being deceived. If you're not listening to Christian radio, you don't know these things. If you're not listening to alternate news sources, you don't know what's going on. You think everything's hunky-dory. You don't realize that the Nordstrom pipeline was blown up this week, and they're telling us Russia did it. Why would Russia blow up their own pipeline that makes them billions of dollars? We're on the verge of nuclear war. That's an act of war. And there are a lot of folks thinking that we did it. There was a bridge that the Russians have built into Ukraine, into Crimea. It was the pride of Russia. It got blown up the other night. It's the way they transport troops into Ukraine. There's some serious things going on in our world. There's a lot of deception in our world. 
But Paul said, strong delusion is coming. We can't separate truth from lie. We're being told men can have babies. We've been told you can pick your gender. We're being told a lot of false things. And without your relationship with God, you know what? You'll believe the deception. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What do we call this today? Propaganda. Men can have babies. You can choose your gender. Babies are just cells. They're not humans. There are many ways to God. And on and on. Cops are evil. Criminals are good. Borders are racist. All these things were being preached to by the media, by the propaganda machine that hates God. There's a move in this country to turn it to a communist country, an anti-God communist country. You see, they don't care if you really believe the lies. They just want you to kind of get comfortable with them. So when the Antichrist is revealed, it'll be harder to resist. Living out our Christian faith is less an issue of what we believe than an issue of whom we trust. Now, I know a lot of folks get upset when I talk about these prophecies. I, I, I'm a prophecy junkie. I love prophecy. I don't know why God made me that way. But I love prophecy. A lot of people don't. They're afraid of it because when they find out these horrible things are coming on the earth, they get afraid. But that's not the purpose of prophecy. It's to embolden you, to encourage you to know that our God is in control. And just as he took the Israelites through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and all these volumes of souls that we see in the Bible that he protected and took care of, he can do the same for us. He's coming back. He's coming for his bride. He paid an extensive price to redeem us, and he loves us. But I do not want you to be deceived. I would like to just gone on with teaching Galatians but I prayed and fasted this week and I had to go this route. The deception is here. After all, the demons believe and tremble. So the question is whether our belief in God brings us to trust in Him with our whole being. Do you trust Him with your spouse? Do you trust Him with your children? Do you trust him with your finances? Do you trust him with your career? Let's imagine a high wire artist who's affixed a cable across a dangerous waterfall and then proceeds to walk back and forth across the wire. A crowd gathers, and upon returning from his walk, the man points to a wheelbarrow and says, ask the crowd, you believe I can push that across all the way across the wire to the other side? And most of the people believe that he can, and so they nod or they shout, yes, 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 we think you can. The high wire artist singles out a man in the front of the crowd and asks, Sir, do you believe that I can take this wheelbarrow across the wire to the other side of the waterfall? Is that true? Do you, do you really believe that? I do, replies the man. Even with a heavy load inside the barrel, you think I can do that? Sure, certainly. Very well, the high wire artist says. I'm glad to hear that. So help me show everyone else here that I can do it by getting into the wheelbarrow. All of a sudden, whether the man truly believes this can be done 
has become terribly personal. Terribly personal. If he does believe, no problem. But if he doesn't really truly believe, he's not getting in that wheelbarrow. Here are Bonhoeffer's words to the German church in 1936. And I wonder if they might apply to the American church today. You know, I read you those statistics, remember. Here's what Bonhoeffer said, and this is very powerful. It convicted me. I can go and sin as much as I like and rely on this grace to forgive me. For after all, the world is justified in principle by grace. I can therefore cling to my bourgeois secular existence and remain as I was before with added assurance that the grace of God will cover me. It is under the influence of this kind of grace that the world has been made Christian, but at the cost of secularizing the Christian religion as never never before. The antithesis between the Christian life and the life of bourgeois respectability is at an end. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world as the world, in fact, being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of it all is that only my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. Paul in Galatians here said, Do I persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There's still time for the American church to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. God has placed you and I here in this moment in time, not by accident. He is calling us to stand. What does that mean, Steve? What does that mean? I can't organize a rally. I don't have the funds to put on a TV or a radio show. You know what you can do? You can get close to God in your personal life. You can spend time with Him. You can get to know your Savior even better. You can pray for the lost. You can pray for our nation. It desperately needs prayer. You can pray for our church. Erwin Lutcher this week on his podcast, he's the pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, is challenging Christians to pray for one hour a week besides your regular devotional time, to set aside one hour to pray for revival to come. When things look darkest, in the past, we've seen God's hand move and do miraculous things. It's pretty dark out there right now, isn't it, Brother John? It's pretty dark. But do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. We have an awesome God who is able to do abundantly above what we ask or think. But we need to be in, in line. We need to make sure that we're doing what he's called us to do. Set a time from your, apart from your devotional time to seek God, will you? Will you, will you look and ask God, what would you have me do? What would you have me say? Speak to people when you don't feel comfortable. You know who's probably making you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> Is our enemy. He doesn't want you to share the gospel. He doesn't want you to share your faith. He doesn't want you to testify to the glory of God. 
He wants to keep people in chains. If you will trust Him, He will lead you. He will guide you. Let's stand. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are an awesome God. We see your word being fulfilled day by day, moment by moment, right before us. Father, please guard our hearts. Do not let us become lax. Do not let us fall asleep. Let us guard our hearts from the lies and the deception that we see around us. We pray, Father, that you would empower us as a church. We ask for your anointing your Holy Spirit on each of our lives in the decisions we make every day in the way we spend our time. We have 168 hours a week. Help us, Father, to partition it so that there is time spent alone with you in relationship with you. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in these last days that we may exit this place in triumph that we're not leaving here a defeated, beat-down church, but you're coming without a church, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we are going to leave here in your glory and your power. Father, help us to be faithful. We, we are so prone to wonder. We confess our sinfulness and our, our, our looseness, Lord, that we tend to get distracted. And you know us, Father. You know what we're made of. You know how we are. And we just pray, Father, for this congregation and for our families that you would watch over them, guard their hearts from the lies, guard their hearts from the deception, Lord. And we just pray, Father, that your spirit would begin to work in us and make us, make us stronger, make us increase our faith to look to you. And we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your mercy that you have begun this good work in us is able also to complete it. We have your word that you will finish what you've begun in us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, gracious, for your goodness and your grace. Be with us today in Jesus' name.